This episode of Seize the A is brought to you by Zero, online accounting software that helps you do business but better. I've never regretted anything I've done. I've made bad decisions, but that's not to say I've necessarily regretted it, right? Because everything has contributed to what my story is and I'm still writing my story. I don't know if you ever do have that aha moment, like my life makes sense. I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at life. Life is about moments, it's about opportunities, it's about seizing those opportunities and enjoying it. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Lovely neighborhood. How crazy, but wonderful that we've made it to Easter already. I hope you're all looking forward to a long weekend and have some play TA scheduled in. This week, I've got the second guest who was originally scheduled in for International Women's Day, who is an incredibly inspiring and powerful woman and who you'll very soon hear is well worth the wait. If you've been listening long enough to know a bit about how my brain works, you'll probably notice as quickly as I did how similarly Raver Keeley and I think, with many parallels earlier on in our story, starting studies in law to gratify our inner nerds. Ray, however, went off on an equally non-linear but completely different pathway that in a parallel universe would pretty much be my absolute dream life. I'll let her tell you most of it herself, particularly because it's her very first podcast. I have no idea how she's remained such an undiscovered gem. So it's my privilege to bring you her fascinating story for the first time. But to give you a little sneak peek, let's just say she's an Ivy League graduate from Yale University, worked in the International Criminal Court for Sierra Leone, has an MBA from Stanford, worked as Anna Wintour's assistant, the editor-in-chief of Vogue, living the Devil Wears Prada out in real life, moved from New York into startups in London and has now moved back home to Sydney and she's just getting started. Buckle in for a serious dose of inspiration. And just a quick note, about 10 minutes in, the battery in Ray's headphones died, so the sound changes a little bit, but it becomes more clear after that. Ray Vakili, welcome to Seize the Yay, or Seize the Ray, should I say. Thank you, very excited. It's my first podcast. I know, <laughs> I still can't believe that, and I'm so honoured to be your first podcast. This is amazing. <laughs> it's a first for everything. <laughs> I just don't get it, because you have such a uniquely interesting and inspiring story, and I just don't know how you've remained such an undiscovered gem. I don't know, I think I feel a bit weird talking about myself I when it's your life I think you just don't really think about sharing it I don't know it's yeah yeah it's <laughs> so interesting that you said that because one of the things we talk about a lot and that we'll obviously talk about today is self-doubt and the imposter syndrome and how it skews our view of our own achievements and leads us to really play them down because I think we tend to believe that if we've done it it couldn't have been that hard so why would it be interesting but you have the most interesting story and I still don't understand how no one's discovered you so it really is such an honor to have you here today 
Thank you. And yeah, you're definitely right. I think I think when you're not just a high achiever, but that imposter syndrome is definitely something that I've experienced in my life. Always feeling like every chapter is an absolute fluke of a chance. Um, <laughs> definitely. But then isn't. the next one comes along and you're like, oh, well, it can't be that much of a fluke if it's happened like three or four times in a row. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and as we'll hear, that extraordinarily high achieving nature of yours really started all the way back in the early days. Such an A-type personality, which I can identify with so strongly. But before we kick off, with the story, I love to start every episode by asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them, just to kind of break the ice. And even if none of us have heard you on a podcast before, a mere look at your LinkedIn alone reveals a very impressive list of amazing achievements, which could easily lead people to believe that you're some kind of superhuman that no one can relate to in any way. I definitely feel like you're a bit of a superwoman. So what's something really normal about you? Gosh, definitely not true. And I think I'm very normal, not extraordinary. <laughs> but I guess, look, I love Harry Potter. I know a lot of people can relate yes. to that. Something else might be a bit polarizing, I guess, but I love cats. I'm like a crazy, crazy cat lady. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wait, so should we even bother continuing with this conversation? Yeah. <laughs> golden retriever puppies. Love golden retriever puppies. Oh, well, you've just redeemed yourself. My golden retriever is sitting right next to me. <laughs> oh, heaven. And back to Harry Potter. I feel like it's such a universal leveler, like people all around the world. As soon as you say that, it breaks down all cultural barriers, age barriers, language barriers. What house are you? Look, I've always thought I was Ravenclaw. I know that. I think you are Ravenclaw. Yeah, do you think? Yeah, I I do. I always wanted to be like Slytherin, a little bit. No. Bad, a little bit naughty, but my real goody two shoes. Yeah, I think I think Ravenclaw. Yeah, I think you're Ravenclaw too. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) See, it's just like a language that everyone can understand. (laughs) What what are you? Oh, I'm Gryffindor. No, but is that because everyone thinks they're Gryffindor? Like I'd love to be Gryffindor. Yeah. Everyone wants to be Gryffindor. As opposed to what the sorting hat would actually say about you. I think I could be Ravenclaw. Definitely, yeah, I definitely could be. But I think what makes a Gryffindor is that you would, you know, you'd ask the hat to make you one. I'd have to be one. I think I'd have to ask. Yeah, no, you see, I definitely wouldn't. But yeah, that's that's good. (laughs) Well, that's why you're a Ravenclaw. (laughs) So the very first section is your way TA, which is where we trace back, right back from the very beginning, all the chapters and all the different phases you went through, because I think we get introduced to people by their current titles and, you know, just getting a quick bio from a friend or, in your case, a former guest, Michelle Battersby, one of your best friends, who introduced me to you, you know, you hear what you do now and all these incredibly impressive and purposeful things, but it's so easy to skate over the many, many chapters and the fact that many times you had no idea what your purpose was or where you were going at all. I still have no idea what my purpose is. <laughs> Neither. It's a process. So long as you embrace that and realise that you have no idea where this chapter is going to take you. But so long as you give it your all and you try your hardest, it doesn't really matter what the outcome is because you can have the confidence that you did your best Yeah, and it'll take you to the next chapter. Oh, and one of the things I talk about all the time in this section is you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. You don't even have to know what the next step is. Everything in your life is a chapter and it's teaching you something, even if you're not sure what that is, which mm-hmm. is why I think it's so important to go back to that very first step to when you were a school kid and you didn't know what careers were and how you made all those decisions, never envisioning that you would end up where you have and who knows where you'll end up next. So take us back to your 
Young Ray at Pimble, which is where you met Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to drop you in it. Head prefect and duck, <laughs> super high achiever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, look, from that intro, I think you can gather that I was a real nerd. Probably didn't speak to a boy till I was in year 12. <laughs> like, my head was honestly always in the books, not for any reason other than the fact that I've always expected a lot from myself. Look, my parents mm. are immigrants. I think like with that comes a lot of sort of things that probably a lot of people can relate to that are children of immigrant parents, like hardworking, sort of mm. real focus on your academic studies. I mean, I think I tried every single musical instrument there was. I think I played like, oh gosh, the flute, the piano, the <laughs> violin, the cello. I even... <laughs> <laughs> like literally everything. I was not musically gifted. Even sports. I've like I've always tried things, right? Tried every sport, tried every musical instrument, and then some things have kind of just stuck. So, look, I really loved tennis. That kind of stuck. I was very um, into drama and debating at school, so <laughs> that really <laughs> stuck and sort of carried on into my uni years as well. But I was a real goal setter as well. Like one of the things that sort of I remember very clearly about my school years was these letters that I'd write to myself. It sounds so nerdy now that I recount this. But every landmark year, so year two, it's like you're moving into junior school. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Year six was a landmark year because it's the last year of junior school. Year seven, moving into senior school. Year 10, because you're moving into like the upper school. And then in year 11, I wrote another letter. And like, I would write like where I was in my life, who my friends were, what I thought I wanted to be when I was older, what I wanted to do. And it was kind of, it was kind of a process of manifestation that I kid you not from about, I mean, look, the year two letter was basically (laughs) mimicking what my sister wanted to do in year, because she was four years old with me. So she would have been like year six. So I think I wanted to be like a fashion designer. I loved dolphins. (laughs) I had like one friend that was my best friend and I was never going to have another friend. Just weird stuff like that. But by year seven, it's funny, I've like still kept all these letters and it's very much the process that I ended up taking in year 12 and the years sort of straight after year 12. So like I had my UAI on that piece of paper in year, in year like 10, I think, or I probably had a vague one in year seven, but in year 10, I had it to the like point that I actually got. What? So, yeah, I know it's crazy. And then I had that I wanted to go to Yale. I think I had that I wanted to be school captain. Like, it sounds really nerdy. It's, but when I look at these, I'm just like, how did that happen? And I think... <laughs> it's because you wrote it down. It's because you wrote it down. And when you write it down, it just all of a sudden, this thought in your head becomes something concrete that you can work towards. And I think when you don't know what you want to do, it's really scary to write the goals down, right? Because you're like, I just have no idea what I want to do. I don't even know what I want to do next year, let alone in five years' time. Mm. And that's something I felt was really difficult after I finished school where you don't have these clear landmarks, like get this mark in this test or, you know, get into this program at uni. Like those are really clear goals, right? But once you finish school, those landmark events are not so clear. But again, I find when you just put pen to paper, things start like formulating, right? So Again, I still have no idea what I want to do in the long <laughs> who run. Who does, but right? <laughs> I've learned, yeah, who does? But I've learned to like 
break it up into into like one year, three year, five year goals. You know, they might change, but at least if they're there and they're written down, you can work towards something and it, it everything just becomes a little clearer and a little less overwhelming, I find, to deal with because I'm also a very anxious person, like have yeah, been all through school. Um, and I just find it's like a, it's a way to help break down the steps. Oh, my gosh. I feel like we can hang up right now. You've just summarised everything CZA is about. I also feel like we should be best friends. So many parts of our stories are similar. I didn't quite write myself that letter in year two, but I was academic enough to be ducks as well and also tried lots of different things and just to see what sticks. And you'll never find out the things that stick unless you're also prepared to try stuff that might not stick and that you might never do again. It's all just this big jigsaw puzzle and you're trying to put pieces together and get rid of pieces that don't work or don't suit you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so valuable what you said too about the importance of just writing things down and breaking them down into smaller goals too. One of the things I talk about in the CZA book is that it's so valuable to dream big beyond what's possible for you so that, you know, you have these huge visions for the future, but to break it down into the right now or this week, this month, so you actually feel like you're achieving things along the way and it never overwhelms you too much so that you don't get anywhere. So I think from a goal set, perspective that technique is so valuable and I can imagine it's helped you a lot to to get to where you have 100% and I think to the flip side of that right you should also have those big dreams like even if you don't know how you're going to get there just having that in the ethos it's I don't know good good vibes I guess and then you'll just find that those smaller steps that you make will eventually somehow culminate in that bigger goal or maybe it will take you somewhere else but at least you have a sense of direction for where you're actually going. Yeah. And I think what you were saying like about trying everything, like if you can put your pride aside, there's really nothing to lose by trying. It's like if you're not in the race, you can't even win it. So, Oh, my gosh, that's one of you know, my favourite quotes ever. <laughs> yeah, it's true though. I, I know you're a big quote person, but I'm a really big quote person too. And, and like I think my favourite one, it's a quote by Rumi. So my parents are actually Iranian. Uh, version, depending so on cool. how you lean politically, I get anyway. And there are very well-known poets, and Rumi is one of these poets. And he has this sort of line that says, "Live life like everything's rigged in your favor." So for me, it's like you know, if you just have that optimism and sort of enter everything thinking that the best is going to work out, just be bold, take a chance. Might not work out. But if you think that like fate or whatever it is, is on your side, you're a lot more likely to give it a go. That's kind of been my guiding philosophy in life. And I think it sort of does go back to that. If you're not in it, like how will you even know if you have a chance? And I think that's such a powerful quote to come from someone who ended up with everyone's dream job as assistant to the editor-in-chief of Vogue, the inimitable Anna Wintour, who's like the queen of the entire universe, which I'm sure still blows your mind. But again, someone had to get that job. And you're such a good example of the fact that if you don't apply, there's no chance. So even if there's only a 1% chance of happening, if you put yourself forward, it could actually happen. And just to be clear, I had no idea I wanted to work at Vogue. That was just me, again, casting a wide net, trying a bunch of things, applying to a job at Vogue that I didn't even really want. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if we should go 
back a bit, but yeah, let's go back. So yeah. before we get to the Vogue chapter, let's go back to you mentioned that in the letters, you know, you were often reflecting on what you thought you wanted to be, and I think one of the really big parts of our youth is translating the things that stick, the things that we enjoy, the things that we're good at, and putting that into some kind of career path. Like, what are you actually going to do with all of that? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if for you, whether at some point, like it does for many of us, you stop basing your decisions on what you're good at and what you like, pretty straightforward, and start letting concepts blur that with societal norms, expectations, pressures, and what you think is successful. I I will say one thing is that my parents have never pressured me into doing what they thought or or what I thought was the right thing to do. My, My dad's an entrepreneur. He's always, you know, been very open of you know, trying your own thing, starting your own business. One thing that I've, I found difficult is that you just don't know what else is out there, right? So mm. at school, and I think this is changing a little bit more at schools and I'm happy to see that because, you know, but at school I, I really thought you could be a lawyer, a doctor, um, and like you just don't know what else is out there. So it's really hard to even visualise that stuff when you don't, yeah, it, you, you don't even know it exists. So for me, it was, you know, what's the hardest course to get into again? Because like uh, <laughs> a lawyer or a doctor. Okay. So I don't want to be a doctor, although I did, I did think about it for a little bit, but law was kind of this idea in my head. I thought it was also the most applicable to different fields if I ever did want to go into different fields. And you studied law, right? Am, am I yeah, right? Yeah. And that was my exact justification for ending up there. Yeah. And so, and then you do wait. The scary thing is you do end up there, right? And then you're in this path and you're like, oh, I don't think this is what I want to do. But it, it then actually making the decision to leave that becomes it's sort of like a proactive choice rather than sort of just going with the flow, which is kind of what I've been doing my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought I wanted to study law and I did get into law. And I think if I didn't get into Yale, I would definitely have been in a corporate law firm, mm. you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I just, it's just so crazy to think how different my path ended up being by the mere fact that, you know, I did end up going to Yale. I had a liberal arts education. I went and worked out in the real world for a few years and then was like, okay, what do I want to do? Let's go back to school. And so the US system is really different to Australia or the UK in that sense because they really encourage this sort of broad, try everything approach Mm. and then go and apply that approach because it's very difficult to get into grad school in the States straight out of uni. Um, And actually for business school, it virtually never happens. For law school, sometimes it happens if you're like a real genius, but they prefer you. you. Well, well, (laughs) you could have done it. (laughs) I don't know. So in one of my letters, I did write that I wanted to go to Yale and I got to year 12 and I found it really overwhelming with the HSC and the whole US application process because you've got to sit the SATs, there's references, there's, you've got your personal essays. So it was just a lot of stuff on top of your HSC. I was school captain. I took my academics for the HSC very seriously as well. Oh, wait, you took it seriously? What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) But I did get in, but you don't find out that you get in until April. And obviously the HSC finishes in what, November, December? And so I just wanted to have a backup plan. So I still apply to uni here. And I started at Sydney Uni, a combined arts law degree. We're the actual same person. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then in April, I found out that I got into Yale. And for me, it was a no-brainer. Like, I'd, I'd always said, if I get in, I have to go. Like, no turning back. So I finished the first semester and um, moved overseas and started this whole new chapter. And it was truly the best decision of my life. I couldn't recommend it more highly. I mean, unfortunately, it's changed a little bit with COVID because I think that whole face-to-face networking experience has been modified. Yeah, it's been modified because now a lot of it is online and and whatever, but that's going to change very soon. I'm mm. I'm confident of it. So, yeah, it was it was amazing. Yeah, it was a really special place. Oh my gosh, what a dream. And it was like Hogwarts. That's <gasps> what it felt like because so cool. everyone had to live on campus and everyone was coming from somewhere else in the world like and and you have access to just the most incredible professors, resources, you know, you're right next door to New York in my case, which was amazing. Yeah. And, and look, even through uni, I did a lot of things that were geared towards this so-called career in law that I thought I wanted to have. I kept up the debating. I was on the Model UN team at Yale. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> they were my favourite favorite team there. And then I did a lot of internships. So one of my internships was at the Special Court for Sierra Leone. I saw that. Yeah, that was an incredible experience. So the Special Court is the first tribunal, international tribunal, to trial and convict someone for child soldiering. And I was working on the Charles Taylor trial. So Charles Taylor, former president of Liberia, who, I mean, if you've seen the movie Blood Diamond or, you know, heard of Blood Diamonds, he's the guy, basically. You know, no matter how many um, movies you watch or articles you read, I don't think anything can prepare you for, like, how harrowing some of those stories are. So... Part of my job, I was working as a legal intern for Brenda Hollis, who was the main prosecutor on the trial at the time um, for the US. Yeah, it was was really crazy to think that people have actually lived these kinds of lives, you know. And as, as part of the internship, I spent, you know, I think it was three weeks in The Hague and then the rest of it, about two months in Sierra Leone, in Freetown, Sierra Leone, it's, it's just another world. And I'm so grateful for those experiences. It's not what I ended up doing. But again, you know, everything in my life seems very non-linear. But at the same time, everything, every decision I've made has gotten me to the next point, right? So I don't think I would have ever gotten that job at Vogue if it weren't for the fact that I went to Yale, if it weren't for the fact that I had this sort of different background that made me stand out from the typical applicants in the position. And then I look at the business school chapter and I think I would have gotten into business school with literally no business acumen or like, <laughs> or not for the fact that I had this really quirky role at Vogue. So I think, yeah, it's, it's non-linear and none of it makes sense, but it all makes sense in the end. Oh, right. Literally, the catchphrase of WayTA is that life is nonlinear. There's even a necklace we made last year that's a disc that's kind of got a waved surface to represent the nonlinear nature of our journey and remind us to embrace the vicissitudes of life and its perfect imperfections. So much of what you said is so representative of everything, you know, I want to talk about. I, Of course, I want to jump straight to the Anna Wintour chapter. I want to hear all about the nitty gritty of Vogue, but... <laughs> I don't want to jump straight there because people miss 
the many different dot points that didn't necessarily connect at the time that it took to get you there. And I can also never be reminded too many times about the concept of sliding doors moments. If you had never gone to Yale, would you have met the people who would have led you to the Vogue role, who would have led you to what comes next? You know, there's always this parallel life going on, but you do have to take a risk sometimes. So I've become really preoccupied with helping other people spark those sliding doors moments on purpose. But I think your story also represents something I'm super passionate about, which is that nothing is ever a waste. The things you do along the way often don't make sense, sometimes aren't connected at all to skills that you end up using later. You know, the International Court for Sierra Leone is not the most logical step that precedes a career at Vogue. And you probably don't have that much overlap of using the same skills, but still it's led you to where you are. And I think people always lament wasting time if it doesn't immediately lead to the next thing. But if you don't attach to that end goal and realize everything's a learning curve and it's the process that could lead you to unimaginable things, you know. Yeah, 100%. I think so long as you're, I've always been a big believer of like a little bit of discomfort. Like sometimes that level is going to be a little higher than that constant. Like you shouldn't always be super uncomfortable, but as soon as you start feeling comfortable, something's not right, right? Like you're not pushing yourself, you're not growing. And so again, like that in a lot of ways has been a guiding principle for me because I'm just like, okay, Sydney feels at this point in my life, comfortable. It's time to like leap. (laughs) So again, you just, you just never know. I'm such a, you never know what lesson is going to come handy, what people you meet, will, you know, return the favour later down the road. Like, and and that's another thing, like just always be kind. I don't mean that, you know, everything you should do, everything you do should be with the expectation that it will be reciprocated later in life. But I think it's just that idea that you just, you never know where that next opportunity is going to come from. Totally. So how did you then, I mean, I know Yale would have just been the most incredible experience. I'd love to have more time to go into the nitpicky details of an Ivy League college experience in the US. It sounds so fascinating. I actually went to Seance Po in Paris and like similar Seance things. Seance Po too. That was like my next chapter after like Yale. No been, way. Yes, true story. <laughs> oh my gosh, my dream. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, same view. Like I'm the biggest proponent of studying or working overseas. I don't think anything could open your mind as much as throwing yourself into a different culture. But you studied political science and global affairs at Yale, which is, again, not something I would think would necessarily lead to a career at Vogue. So firstly, how did you get there? I want to hear everything about the Anna Wintour chapter. But then also talk us through how you agitate for change in different chapters. How do you know it's time to move on? Because obviously now you're not still at Vogue. So there's been quite a few chapter moves. But yeah, first tell us everything about Vogue. (laughs) Tell us everything. Okay. It was a crazy, wild experience. And sometimes I am in awe of the fact that I stumbled across this opportunity too. As I mentioned, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. The political science, global affairs, it's like what most lawyers do in their undergrad before going into a postgraduate law degree. But as I mentioned, in America, you're also sort of expected to work for a few years. And I knew I didn't want to go into consulting or finance. And they were the main sort of visa sponsoring roles in the US. So I kind of just cast a wide net when I graduated. And this was just just before graduation as well. I would left things pretty last minute. And I started freaking out because I didn't feel ready to move back to Australia yet. Mm-hmm. So I cast a really wide net and applied to like 
everything in every field. And a friend at Yale at the time was like, oh, I think I know someone at Vogue. There is <laughs> an editorial position as assistant to one of the editors, some random editor. You should apply there and I'll put in a good word for you. <laughs> Amazing. I think the, the connection with Vogue was that I was also very interested in journalism. That was sort of a side option if the law thing didn't work out. So I thought, <laughs> okay, it's it's a magazine. It's a very well-reputed magazine. I could be a serious journalist at Vogue. Um, <laughs> Tom A. Nast obviously owns a bunch of publications. It's a foot in the door. I think you're the only person in the entire world who got the dream job at Vogue and was like, oh, this could be a stepping stone into something <laughs> else, <laughs> something more intellectual. <laughs> and I now have so much respect for, like, it is such a fast-paced industry. It is so stressful. But um, so I did apply to this assistant editorial position at Vogue. My friend's friend was like, oh, you're not American. We're never going to sponsor a visa for this. It's Vogue doesn't do that. Conde Nast doesn't do that. I kind of suspected that because, again, very few places sponsor visas unless they're like a Bain McKinsey BCG or like a Morgan Stanley. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, oh, whatever, like still put my application in. A week later, I was graduating and a girl called Adriel called telling me that HR had handed her my resume and she was trying to fill a role. Would I be interested? Tell me more about the role. (laughs) Well, look, we don't really publicize this role. It's not really advertised, but it's assistant to Anna Winter. (gasps) Oh my God. Really? And she's like, yeah, like we, one of Anna's assistants is leaving. She has three Um, and, and we're looking for a new role. And HR handed me your resume. And I also went to Yale. I actually did know of Adriel because she was two years above me at Yale. I was friends with a few of her friends, but I had actually never directly been introduced to her. But again, in America, there is a very strong network factor in play. You know, if you went to the same uni, if you were in the same fraternity, if you played the same sport, Mm. they're very supportive of that, which is wonderful. So I graduated and went to New York and my parents were all here. Like everyone was here. I was going back to Sydney in a week and I didn't have a job lined up. And the whole interview process started and I met with about five different people at Vogue, finally met with Adriel. Adriel was like, everything's gone well. It's time to meet Anna. Your interview is going to be very short. Don't be worried. It'll be like two minutes long. And oh. sure enough, it was, it was literally two minutes long. <gasps> Left thinking I hadn't said anything about myself. I felt like I hadn't displayed my best assets. Um, <laughs> feeling a little bit down and thinking it didn't go that well. And I remember I was going back to Sydney the next day. That night I got a call from Adriel and she's like, you got the job. Are you ready to start? Like as soon as we sort out your visa. So so exciting. And then how can you say no to that? You just can't. Like it was such a special opportunity that I knew it would open. I, I just knew that it was going to open a lot of doors. I mean, um, every door in the world. Every door. Exists. And I, I think what I didn't realise was just how many doors it was going to open and how incredible the opportunity was going to be. So then I went back to Sydney for a week. They sorted out my visa. I came back and I literally started like a week out of school. Very stressful. It was it was tough and it was remarkable and I met 
so many incredible people along the way. Okay, but most um, importantly, how accurate is Devil Wears Prada? <laughs> what parts of it are reminiscent of the actual job? What parts of it are you like, that's absolutely not how it well, works? I don't know how much I can divulge. I'm going to talk oh, high level. Course, yeah. the, the book was written by one of Anna's assistants. So, like, in terms of, like, the <laughs> I think that, that stuff's all out in the open and it's, it's accurate. She's tough. She's really, really tough, but amazing. And, you know, I learned so many lessons from her and I'm so grateful for the two and a half year experience as stressful as it was. So, I mean, it's accurate in the sense that the job is round the clock. It's seven days a week. You don't get a holiday. I mean, you get a holiday when she gets a holiday, but she barely never takes a holiday. <laughs> and then, and then when, when she's on vacation, you kind of split it up between the other three systems. So someone's always on call. And it's also accurate in the sense that you sort of start your way from third assistant and you work your way up. There was two in the movie. I think she might actually have two now. And each role has different responsibilities. But, you know, just to give you some of the lessons that I learned, I learned that, you know, discipline, these people get to where they are because of hard work and discipline. And Discipline, you know, for her was waking up at five o'clock in the morning every day, being the first person in the office, like routine habits that everything was always the same. You know, I learned that the little things matter as well, no matter who you are, no matter how important you are or, you know, what role you occupy. Thank you notes, birthday messages, and she would never forget any of them. It's like anyone, you know, and also just noticed how she surrounded herself with the best and brightest minds, right? And that's something I took for granted was just how smart people at Vogue are. Like, they're really smart and they work so hard. And you get paid like nothing. So you're really working around the clock with, with very little return in that sense. And, and another thing that was really amazing is just how involved she is in every aspect of the magazine. Like, I don't think there's a book or a film or a, you know, theatre production that has gone into that magazine that she hasn't watched, reviewed, <gasps> gone through very closely. Like, wow. she just had a foot in every door. And for me, that was the most amazing eye-opening experience in the world. She just knew everyone and and was an amazing networker. Like it was it was truly, truly remarkable. And I think my time there sort of ignited this love of business and smart, powerful women in business and just this yeah. belief that you could do anything. You know, the great thing about editorial is that it is a very female dominated space, you know, and it was yeah. it was a fun, crazy girl. Lovely neighborhood for all my fellow business owners out there. I've got a tip that will absolutely change your life for the better. Since the very beginning, we've been using Xero as our accounting software. And for over five years, it's been the glue that holds all of our businesses and my sanity together. It's easy to use online accounting software that simplifies everyday business tasks, such as invoicing customers, managing cash flow and inventory, reconciling your bank transactions so your books are always up to date and collating all of your data into clear and invaluable reports. It's hosted online, but there's also a Zero mobile app. So wherever you go, you've got access to the tools you need to run your business. Whether you're part of a team or out on your own, it has options and features for everyone. It's so easy to get started. Search XERO today and start your 30-day free trial. That's XERO.com.
And I mean, it doesn't really matter what the subject matter was of what you did. I think most of us would have probably paid them to have had that opportunity. And, you know, just to be in the orbit of someone like that, every second with her must have been such a learning experience just to get all of her wisdom by osmosis. (laughs) It's hard work. Like these people, they work so hard and nothing comes easily. And, And I think, you know, that, you know, people talk about corporate banking as being a really great training ground. This was corporate banking on crack. I don't even, (laughs) it was such a great training for, you know, developing a solid work ethic, for being Mm. honest, for being, learning all those little tiny details of what goes into being like such a remarkable leader. Yeah. So you mentioned about being exposed to the mentality that anything is possible. And I think that's such an amazing antidote to self-doubt and imposter syndrome. To be a woman where self-doubt is one of the most pervasive and destructive reactions that we can have to uncomfortable situations. To then be around powerful women who reiterate to you that you can push through that is so powerful. So I'd love to know how that has played out for you in that chapter, particularly being in such a coveted role and thinking, you know, why am I here? Everyone in the world wants this position. Why me? How do I live up to this? What kind of thoughts did go through your mind? This is starting to weave into the next section, which is your nay TA and all the things that really challenged your joy. And imagine the same with burnout. You were on call 24-7 and there are actually chapters of your life where balance does look a little bit different or maybe it is not something that you can strive for. I mean, sometimes there are short-lived chapters where you're not going to be able to prioritise rest as much. How did you survive that time? Oh, I don't know how I survived. <laughs> sometimes I look back. I know, honestly, sometimes I look back and I'm like, oh, my God, I was a superhuman. I, like, didn't sleep for two years. No, that's not a good thing to be advocating for. But but there are chapters where you do it, right? Sometimes you yeah. have to put yourself on the line and it's not forever. In hindsight, you look back and you're like, how did I do that? Like, I still feel like that I can't believe I did it but you have these amazing abilities in yourself if you just back yourself so I think I think that's one thing like you have to be willing to back yourself and have faith in yourself that if you give it a go and if you put all your energy into it that things will eventually start to make sense I think I think for me like the first six months were really tough like I just I didn't know what I was doing or how I was doing it there were days I wanted to quit I would cry myself to sleep like it was a difficult time but then all of a sudden it just makes sense like things just fall into place and as you start to learn and become used to you know no job is easy when you first start but at some point you learn those skills and you they become second nature to you. And I think that's kind of what happened after two years for me. So that I had plateaued a little bit and I was looking for the next chapter and it was also feeling exhausted and burnt mm. out as, as you sort of phrased it. And now, you know, now I'm like, oh, should I have stayed at both? I don't know. But I did know that after two years, Anna and I had a conversation. She's like, what do you want to do next? You know, I think you'd be really good in PR. And, and one of her things was sort of, you know, she would just hire these incredibly smart accomplished young women straight out of school. A lot of people are like, why would you do that? If Because you, you're just going to have such a high turnover, right? Like every two years she's got new assistants. But I think it was actually genius because mm. she was training her future, you know, head of marketing, head of events, director of PR, like all of them. And she was basically instilling that incredible work ethic, that sense of, you know, discipline and self mm. and and a lot of the times, like, they would stay on and go on to do amazing things. And if, 
If they didn't, it was somewhere in the industry, somehow related. And, you know, kind of that idea of like all the dots would connect in the end, even if they moved on. So she was like, I think you'd be great in PR. What about events? But I was pretty sure like I, I just, I wanted to change. As I mentioned, I was really interested in this, in this business idea and sort of, I loved the fashion space as well. I, I love how fast paced it is and how creative and, you know, it's, it's that hype and excitement that you would get from a corporate job, but in a completely creative field. At the Met Gala. <laughs> it was, I, I loved it. And so I, I, I knew I wanted to stay in the space. I knew I wanted to do my own sort of thing or, or work at a startup. And one of my favorite things working at, at Vogue was the CFDA Fashion Awards. So like just seeing these young designers building up new businesses and, you know, how Vogue would basically, you know, there was a big prize money and, and then, you know, there was that incubator aspect at Vogue as well that was really exciting to watch and for me was one of my favourite parts of working there as well. Actually, yeah, quickly to digress, what were the coolest pinch me moments? Like, you know, meeting Obama, like what were the big things? Meeting Obama was Awesome. And you got to meet Michelle. Yeah, I love Michelle. <laughs> I know. The Met Bulls were fabulous. Like I was very involved with those because for the most part of my time there I was second assistant. So that was looking after the Met Ball and it's like every <gasps> Monday at 7 a.m. at Met. And it was spectacular. Like it was empty that early in the morning. There's no one there. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. You just like walk through the Met. <gasps> they're, they're just like memories that I just can't believe. You were there. You know? You know, we worked on that Kim and Kanye cover. She was super involved with the Mark Clooney's wedding. Like, it just, yeah, very cool. I, I think the best part of the job, I mean, obviously, like, you get a lot of perks, but PRs and, like, theatre people, they just love you. So we remember <laughs> for some Kanye West concert because they really wanted Anna to go, obviously. They just were obsessed with me and they were like, you know what, you want to come to the Kanye show? We'll get you tickets to the Kanye show. So I'm like... Amazing. Like I kind of assumed we'd have good seats, but I did not expect, like literally had security take us to a place that Kim Kardashian was like sitting in this barricaded area and we were like escorted into the barricaded area. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like we're like watching the concert standing right next to her. It was like, it was amazing. And and that went with like theater because Anna loved the theater. So we were always just the most amazing shows on Broadway. You always have tickets for Manolo's. Oh oh my gosh. So the Manolo PRs loved us. Really good perks. Okay, so my next question then is, you know, moving back to the shift out of that incredible chapter, I would love to just keep talking forever about Vogue, but I think what's really interesting is when you move out of roles like that, you know, your identity gets so tied up in that title and that prestige Mm -hmm. and everything associated with that, like the productivity and success of it all. And I can imagine it would be so hard to walk away from something where, you know, you do have all these incredible connections and people do want to be around you all the time. So how did you start to redefine your identity and your ideas of who you were when it came to a bold new chapter? That's definitely something I still struggle with, I would say, is like, what's the next big thing? You know, I've often spoken to Michelle about this as well. When she moved on from her role at at Bumble, she was like, it was such a prestigious big role. Like, it's really hard to take that leap of faith to take that next step. I think if you just, it's kind of like that, that staircase, right? Like every decision you make, it's just, it's just another step and nothing's definitive or final. And, and at some point you've got to take the leap. And at some point you're probably going to start at the bottom of the ladder, right? Like you, you're never going to get to the top of the stairs of these analogies. <laughs> but I think for me, it, 
to be completely frank, it was a combination of burnout and just I really, I needed some time away from that space, which is why I moved to London. And I just needed something different. I think defining yourself by titles, it's a, it's a dangerous game because then you're like, where does it end, you know? And, and it's so much pressure to put on yourself. Mm. But I think you, you can define your own roles. And if you're excited and pa- this is something I'm learning, okay, if you're excited and passionate about what you do, no one really cares what your role is. Everyone's just like happy for you. And everyone is just like envious of the fact that you love your job and you're like killing it in whatever you're doing. And it doesn't really matter what you are doing. So I moved to a startup. Well, it was, it's actually, I can't, you can't really call it a startup now because they're a very big company called Reward Style and they monetize, it's an influencer platform that monetizes content for bloggers and influencers, affiliate marketing. And they're a Dallas-based company, but they just opened their London office at the time. And again, this job was very serendipitous in the fact that I was talking to Whitney, who is, Whitney is the founder of Bumble, who I introduced Michelle to. That's right. I was talking to Whitney and this was like when I was ready to leave Vogue, she's like, come work for me. I would love to have you, blah, blah, blah. But at the time, Bumble was a dating app and I was just like, I don't know if that's like my space. I told her that I was interested in fashion. She goes, you need to meet my friend, Amber. So one of Whitney's best friends is Amber Vansbox, who is the founder, co-founder of Reward Style. So she introduced me to Amber and Amber was telling me all about Reward Style. And it was that connection actually that basically propelled me to jump over to London. It was that and a boy. I'd be, I'd be lying if I didn't say there was a boy involved as well. So it kind of all just made sense. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go with it. And I loved it. It was, it was so much fun and it was so different to Vogue, going from like a very corporate structure to an office, which at the time was like less than 10 people. It was you take on as much responsibility as you want. You really are the driver of the car and you can make the decisions that you want to make. And that role took me to the most incredible places as well because I was basically working on their business development into like new markets. Australia was one of the areas of focus, but also the Middle East. So I ended up going to like Kuwait and, you know, spent a lot of time in Dubai with like the UAE influencers. It was just, it was a really amazing job and journey watching Amber and Baxter who are, they've become like mentors to me. They're they're amazing operators have built this incredible business. And for me, this reward style step was a stepping stone to my interest in entrepreneurship in the startup space. And it really made sense with, with my narrative when it came time for business school and like my business school applications. I had Anna as a reference. I had my boss in London as a reference. And then I ended up going to Stanford and doing a business degree there. And the reason for that was as much as I loved my Vogue experience, I needed to strengthen my quantitative skills a little bit more. Um, I wanted to take those classes in finance and econ that I just hadn't taken in undergrad either, to be honest. And I was becoming progressively more interested in this startup space. And Stanford was sort of the epicenter of all things startup, tech, entrepreneurship. I love how you just add a casual, like, I didn't know what was coming next, so I just did an MBA at Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I just, yeah, it was incredible. And even at Stanford, I really didn't know what I was doing. A lot of people knew exactly what they were doing. But Stanford was great. Stanford was so different to Yale. It was West Coast versus East Coast and... You know, there is a big there is a big difference, believe it or not. Like East Coast people are like very 
high intensity, very busy, busy, busy. The West Coast is super relaxed. And, <laughs> and it's yeah, warm. <laughs> warm. The weather was beautiful. It was heaven. It was really, really a great place to do a postgraduate degree. They basically train you to become little startup people. And <laughs> like I had Eric Schmidt as a professor. Evan Spiegel would come in for a few classes. Stanford. And the caliber of professors. Oh, had Tyra Banks as a professor. That was awesome. Stop. I love so cool. Tyra. She was great. And that was all about like personal branding and like, loving <laughs> yourself. <laughs> Do you know what I love though? Your willingness to, you know, firstly, I think people get really bogged down about starting from the beginning again with anything. And, you know, even in their earlier years of life, will be like, nah, I'm too old for that. But it's never too late to start something new never and be a late. beginner. And also as a discomfort junkie who likes to be a bit of a beginner, you know, you're always going back to the start. But that means the self-doubt is almost on steroids because you're always in situations where you have absolutely no idea what you're doing and no qualifications. But one of the most practical ways to combat imposter syndrome is to go and upskill, like go and do a new degree or go and learn new stuff. And it's it's never too late to go back. It's so funny you say that because I was talking to Michelle last night and I was like, I'm really nervous for this podcast. Like, I've never spoken about myself. She's like, well, you've got the most interesting story. You need to start speaking about yourself a bit more. And like, I think it actually comes from the fact that I'm like, I'm not that interesting. I'm not, you know, but I think when you put yourself out there a little bit, you realize that it's reciprocated. People will, you're never going to, a door is never going to be closed in your face and slam shut. So Thank you for taking interest in my story. It's been very right. nice. It is the most fascinating story. And Michelle and I were laughing about how, you know, now you've launched, now you're out in podcast land, you won't be able to get rid of people asking you to be on podcasts. You're not an undiscovered gem anymore. <laughs> but what I love about you is that, you know, we've covered 85 chapters already and you're not 800 years old. So firstly, that's amazing. But I also fully believe that you've only reached 10% of the story. You have so much more that you haven't even started thinking about. Yeah, uh, yeah, we probably are at 10% of the story. I agree with you in the sense that making all these changes and starting from scratch so many times, it's a little destabilizing. Sometimes you're like, what if I did take the linear path? Like, I'd be killing it. You know what? I think... Yeah, I wouldn't give up the experiences I've had for anything. Something to keep in mind, at least for people that are worried that the decision might not be the right one, I've never regretted anything I've done. I've made bad decisions, but that's not to say I've necessarily regretted it, right? Because everything has contributed to what my story is and I'm still writing my story. And it's funny, like, I don't know if you ever do have that aha moment, like, my life makes sense, like, everything makes sense. I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at life. Life is about moments, it's about opportunities, it's about seizing those opportunities and enjoying it, enjoying the ride. I don't know. But I do think you've mentioned something really important here, that you have to enjoy it. This is why it's called Seize the A, because... Otherwise, you know, you can get very bogged down in seizing the day and just grabbing every opportunity because learning and self-development is really addictive. But because of that, you can end up just doing all these self-development things, even if it's not really going in any direction. You might just be running on the spot and accumulating achievements without actually enjoying it because you're never taking a bird's eye view or because you're burning yourself out. So 
The last section is called your play TA, which is where particularly A-type personalities like us, whose identity is very much intertwined with productivity and achievement, it can be really hard to find a you outside of all that. So obviously there's a lot of gratification in all the incredible experiences you've done and continue to do, but outside of that, where do you find joy in activities that aren't related to growth? Sure. I mean, this is going to sound like it's related to growth, and my book club will be very upset that I'm saying it's not related to growth because they were <laughs> a very serious book club. But we are, we are a very serious. But like, I've joined the book club since coming back to Sydney. For me, coming back to Sydney was actually really tough. Like, you know, had had this really fast-paced life overseas, constantly traveling, mm. and then I moved. And, and all my friends are over there now too because I think I think that period of like 18 to 24, it's, it's a very formative time. And I spent that all there living and breathing life with these girls. So it was hard. It was hard moving back because I, I hadn't been very good at keeping in touch with my school friends. And Sydney's pace was a little slower. And then compound that with the fact that COVID hit, it was really, really tough. I actually ended up joining a book club with a group of random girls. I, I knew one of the girls in the book club, but eight of the girls I didn't know and they didn't really know each other either they were all connected by this one girl and I joined that very early on when I moved back and they are truly some of my favorite people in the world we meet once a month we pick a book we talk about the book for 10 minutes it's our content chat we like talk about every (laughs) interview every Netflix show and they're such smart amazing interesting women and I think the fact that you know, none of us really knew each other before coming into this. It's just made us so much closer. And for me, I, I love reading and, you know, it's sort of sharing that unified love of books and friendship and food. We like have lots of dinners and, and stuff like that. Oh, I love cooking too. That's another thing. I love. That's like COVID happened though. I'd never cooked overseas. Um, yeah. What did bring you home? Was it COVID? It was, look, I always knew that I wanted to come home. For me, I'm very close to my family and I've always felt like a little part of me was missing overseas. Mm-hmm. You know, my sister and my brothers have kids and they were growing up so quickly. It was just really important for me to make a life here. And, and there really is nowhere like Australia. Like mm-hmm. it, it's such a safe, amazing place and the quality of life, like the average quality of life is so incredible. Accessibility to the beaches, the weather, like it's a pretty special place. So I always knew I wanted to come back. I don't know if I felt ready straight out of business school. I probably could have stayed a little longer, but I also realized that, you know, if I was to take a job there, I'd probably be committing for like another three to five years. And it just felt like it was time to build a network here, you know, strengthen my friendships with old friends and and just make new friends, all of the above. It, It just, it felt like the right timing. And then when COVID hit, I'm actually grateful that COVID hit because I probably would have gone back overseas were it not for COVID. Mm. Since being here, I've just, I've found my yay. I love it. Yeah, girl. It's great. So So how are you now? What is next? What's the now? It's great. I've got a great group of friends. I am working on a new business, which I'm very excited about. I can't, I, I, I don't want to say too much about it yet just because we're sort of in the process of launching, but it's kind of combining all of my chapters in one and it's bringing my love for overseas businesses to Australia 
and TBC. TBC, but it, it feels very authentic to me. It's very tailored to my skill set. And it just even more reinforces that chapters, you know, you need different things at different times of your life. And then you needed the fast paced dynamic world of big cities in the US. And now maybe you're home for some grounding. 100%. 100%. And at some point you do need to like put some roots down somewhere and Mm. moving around is fun and exciting but it's exhausting and I don't think I realized how exhausting it was until I couldn't travel anymore yeah I literally was on a plane every single weekend like I cannot think of a weekend that I was not on a plane either you know going to LA or New York or it was a lot and now having not been on a plane for over a year now the thought of getting on a plane gives me anxiety now I'm just like oh how, how did I do that all the time? It just really slowed things down in a way that I think has been beneficial for, for everyone. Like there's been some really great things to come out of this. Obviously, a lot of horrible things as well. But I think it's almost the breaker of that autopilot circuit of adrenaline and momentum and yeah. relentless forward motion that without stopping, you don't often realize how far beyond your limits you've gone. And you know, how far beyond even making conscious choices you've gone in just acting out of habit. And we would never have wished it to happen this way, but it was probably a much needed global reset for many of us. I'd love to know on this play TA thing before we wrap up, you are such an intellectual, which is what makes me fangirl you so much. And I love that your play TA is a book club, but is there anything that you do that's just silly just to let your brain have a break from the intellectual? Gosh, like what? Like watching Netflix? Is exactly. That- do you watch I Netflix? I love a Netflix show. I love a Netflix show. I'm- okay, good. That makes me feel better. I need more content. Give it to me. What's your go-to ultimate slothy, lazy rest things? I love Monopoly. Oh, love board games. Yeah, Monopoly's fun. I love the movies. I love cinema. Like I've actually been, I haven't gone in a long time, but I'd love to start going again. That was something I used to love doing pre-COVID times. Um, (laughs) Netflix, cooking, as I mentioned. Like I I just love, I'm a bit of a foodie, like trying new recipes, love hanging out with my family. I don't know. What what else is slothy? I feel like... No, they're great. <laughs> so second last question, what are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? And this is generally pretty hard for people who are on podcasts all the time, but you could pretty much tell us anything and we find it interesting. <laughs> I'm really allergic to horses. Horses? Yeah. I, well, actually, I'm very allergic to fur in general, which is why it's so sad that I'm obsessed with cats and golden retriever puppies. Oh, no. Um, but particularly allergic to horses. So like horses is like the physical reaction. I don't know why. That's so um, random. I'm fine if I'm around them, but as soon as I touch them, like I get I get boils and like it's it's bad. Oh my it's god, bad. boils? It's, it's weird. Wow. <laughs> Too much information. No, that's such a good one. <laughs> Other than that, uh, what don't people normally know about me? Tattoos. Oh, do you speak hmm. Farsi? Yeah, I do. I can't read or write, so I'm technically illiterate. <laughs> but I do speak it. My parents, like, I've grown up with it all around. That's um, amazing. Yeah. And what else don't people know? And that you're a Ravenclaw. I think that's also a really, really yes. important one. <laughs> Love Ravenclaw. 
I also think you'll actually understand when I talk about the whole, you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. All I can see in my mind is those Harry Potter staircases that all yes, of these don't the, connect and are moving the all the time. windy ones and that's <laughs> so true. And since I love quotes so much, let's finish with your favourite quote. Oh my gosh, I've got so many favourite quotes. Okay, can I give you two? Absolutely. So one of them is a pretty obvious, well, it's not obvious, but it's a very famous one, is Churchill. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. <gasps> That's amazing. Yeah. And then another one that I just really love because I feel like it's been really important to me in how I find my friends and the people I choose to surround myself with, but it's Mark Twain and it is keep away from people who try to belittle your ambitions. Small people always do that, but the really great people make you feel that you too can become great. Oh, I love so that one. So I'm all about having cheerleaders in your life and people that want you to succeed and, you know, like I want that for my friends. Mm. When my friends succeed, I'm so happy and I truly want the best for the people that I love. And I think that's just a real indicator of like, if you love people, you should want them to, to do well and to be the best version of themselves. So be a cheerleader. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've just become your biggest cheerleader. I feel like we should be best friends forever now. <laughs> you have such a fascinating story and such valuable insights. Thank you so much for jumping on this podcast for the very first time too. I so appreciate it. Thanks for making this experience so effortless and easy. It was so nice to chat to you. What a fascinating human being. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I could have kept talking to Ray for hours about the many amazing things she's done, especially since it's Ray's very first time sharing her story. I would love the neighborhood to shower her with love. It would be so wonderful if you enjoyed to share this app and any takeaways or aha moments you had, tagging at Rava Keeley and myself so we can shine the light on her that she deserves. I can't wait to hear what's next and we'll keep you all updated as things unfold with her latest project, perhaps a little update on Yays of Our Lives. We are off to the countryside for the Easter weekend, which is a tradition in my family. We've been doing it for over 20, maybe even over 30 years now. Last year during lockdown was the first time in my memory that we haven't been. So we'll be taking a week off next week and a break from episodes to fully unwind and make some memories, all the play TA, but we'll be back after that. Hope you make some time for yourselves too and that you're seizing your yay.